0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature.
1: It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
2: I'm Alan Winston, and this is Hunker Down Podcast, where I talk with actors and musicians whose careers have been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Contact me at UpperWestSideRadio at with questions and comments. Kaplan is a foremost violinist who has performed solo with nearly every major American orchestra, including the New York and Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestras, the Cleveland and Philadelphia Orchestras, and it goes on and on. Mark Kaplan has collaborated with the world's foremost conductors, and among those are Ormandy, Maisel, Mazur, Foster, Gotti, Rattle, Slatkin, and again, many, many others. He wrote to me recently that he believes, quote, in human society's eventual need for music and for live music, but quite possibly not in the ways we're used to it. If not, then he asked, what will be the musician's role? For this Hunker Down episode, we'll be talking to Mark Kaplan about his musical career and how he imagines classic and chamber concert events may change as we emerge from this COVID-19 threat. Mark Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us here on Hunkered Down. Um,
0: Pleasure. I guess we're all hunkered down together. Yeah, I checked out some of your other hunkered downs. Uh, you do some beautiful, interesting things there. And I should check you have more podcasts to do, but I haven't had a chance to.
2: Well, th- thank, thank you very much. In another podcast, we're talking about that social distance doesn't really say it because we're we're socializing now. It's more like physical distance.
0: It is definitely physical distance that's the the issue. Right. And, um, yeah, social distance, although the physical distance affects the social distance because because there is a problem with actually connecting with people on Zoom, which is uh, it, it works only a certain percentage.
2: It does. It does. I mean, we've been... Uh, recording live, of course, and we've had a res- you know resort to Zoom, and the quality of the sound is not that good. But to me, it's the sound of the times. This is uh, we we sound Zoom, so when they refer back to 2020, they'll say, well, all those archives are Zoomy or something.
0: They'll they'll come up with a good adjective. Um, or there was a New Yorker cartoon several <laughs> weeks back, uh, which showed. Um, as, uh, as a typical Zoom screen with like twenty pictures on it, yeah, and it and it had to do with like Grandpa's birthday or something, <laughs> and and I thought, okay, you know, this this never would have happened if not for this.
2: There used to be a game show where there was a wall of entertainers.
0: Yeah, that's right. I forget what show that was, um, but it it the fact that I remember it it all dates me. So
2: well, it dates both of us. So there you go. There you go. You're mm-hmm. you're 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 a little bit younger than I am. I know, it, it was Hollywood Squares. There you go. <laughs> there you go, yes. <laughs> I wanted to thank Ralph Schulte for inviting you into the program. He's helped me with a lot of um, of, of you. your very talented musicians, so I feel very honored that uh, Ralph has kind of, like, become a producer of, uh, of Hunker he, Down, in a way.
0: He's your impresario. Yeah, well, I'm thankful to him, too. Nice to meet you and that... Uh, Great, and now I have to check out all your podcasts.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, How are you dealing with being hunkered down? Is it it good for you? You're getting your work done?
0: It is um, mixed. Um, So I would say, well, of course, I've had concerts canceled and all that. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, I'm not getting my work done. I am getting my teaching done, um, and it has pluses and minuses. I have assigned myself a kind of project which is, Long, long overdue, which is to uh, to learn the complete Izai sonatas, which I think I'm not. This is not original. I think lots of violinists have have found stuff like that, and espe- maybe even especially Izai, to be something interesting to turn to. I, I have my own history with Izai, which makes it come to me now, uh, which is that when I was much younger, I guess probably my early 20s, then... Um, does the name Irving Culloden mean anything to you? Sorry. Okay, I guess I'm more dated than you. Okay, so Irving Culloden was the music critic for Saturday Review. Very distinguished writer on music, and he had come to by chance hear me play some things at Juilliard, and and wrote some... Nice little bits about it, and I was flattered by that, of course. And he then—I can't remember what was the occasion. I think it was a turning of the decade. Maybe I was in my sort of mid twenties, and it was the the turning to the eighties. I'm not sure what it was, Um, or maybe I don't know. It may have been before that. It may have been the turning to the seventies. Whatever it was, different people were writing, like the best CDs. Of the decade, that kind of thing, and I didn't have any CDs. I hadn't, I hadn't recorded anything, and um, so and and he instead of writing the best CDs of the decade, he wrote what he his wish list of the best CDs of the coming decade, and on his wish wish list was Mark Kaplan with complete Izai sonatas, and. And that was kind of out of the blue because, um, you know, he knew who I was, but I was pretty much a non-entity at that point. And, um, and the other things on his list were like very, very distinguished performers. And I, I was kind of blown away, and I thought, wow, maybe I can get a record company interested in doing this. And at the point, at that time, I had played the third Izai Sonata, which is maybe the most commonly performed. And I thought, um, okay, I'll learn the others. Um, But I couldn't get any record company interested. And maybe partly because I was young and naive and I had no idea how to go about that. Um, But at any rate, nothing came of that. And over the years, I never actually learned any of the others in any depth i mean i read through them i taught them but i didn't actually learn them and now i'm in like the the second half of my 60s and i thought well you know here i am i'm at home i can't go play concerts this would be a great time to learn this and besides if i don't do it now i'm not going to do it because they're i mean they're not stupendously difficult pieces, but, but they're not easy, and they're virtuoso pieces, and, I, and, and my fingers don't actually move as fast as they did 40 years ago, so, um, so now is the time. So I've been, I've been learning them, and they're beautiful pieces and, and amazingly inventive.
2: You are, as you've alluded to already, or a professor, uh, and you uh, teach at Indiana University's Jacobs School of Music. Is that where you are now? No, I'm in New York. You're in New York, okay. Because I had a whole list of questions here about how Indiana's doing with COVID, but you're here in the city. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, in, Indiana is right now not doing too well, but, um, and New York is relatively doing fine. Yeah. But um, uh, there was a situation when I went to Indiana. I went there from California. I had been teaching at UCLA, and I went there with my wife, who's a wonderful pianist, uh, Yael Weiss, And we were both teaching at Indiana. And after a while then, I think it it, it got a bit too much for her to be in a tiny town like that. Um, Because Bloomington is a tiny town, even though for its size it's a very rich town. And we moved to New York. And so I go back and forth, which is a very ridiculous schedule. Um, But I've been doing that now for probably, uh, I don't know, 11 years, in some sense, this situation is easier for me. I don't have to hop on planes all the time. I don't have to leave my family. But it's more difficult in other ways, obviously. And the teaching is, is not um, it, it's not the same thing.
2: Let's, just... let's talk about the teaching a little bit. Uh, you're teaching online, and I've talked to other musicians who are also teaching and doing lessons. How do you handle that?
0: Well, the first thing is if, if the student has a good internet connection and they have all their settings on Zoom maximized, then um, it's not bad. Mm-hmm. It, has, it has very nice things about it. One of them is it, like, really reduces us exactly to, to, to just the playing. There's not, there's not much else you can do. Um, there are problems. There are times when it's important to be able to physically touch somebody in order to demonstrate a point. There are times when it's actually important to pick up their violin because they're having trouble with something, and you think, well, is it them or is it their instrument or is it their bow? and they're having trouble like playing ricochet, and you, and you say, okay, let me try your bow, and you find that actually their bow is like impossible to play ricochet with, and you say, okay, time to get a new bow. Um, and and you can't do that stuff with Zoom. I'm
2: not a musician, so whenever I get a musician and they use a term that I don't know, I ask, ricochet, what is
0: that? Uh, what does it sound like? Yeah. It, the word, though, what does it sound like? Ricochet, it sounds, it
2: sounds like, like, uh, like a bullet uh, banging off of a of a wall and coming back at yeah, me or yeah. something
0: so ricochets you have several notes in one bow that are bound so so that's ricochet and when you play many pieces have a so that that's using ricochet and um and it's it's a technique which is not particularly difficult but many students can't do it um and i'll tell you in a brief Tangent if you don't mind. No, the reason they can't do it is because of Suzuki training. So everybody learns now to play, um, pretty much everybody, and they start with the materials from Suzuki, who was an amazing person, an amazing teacher, uh, I think amazing personality, and um, who I actually met once. And he um he had, has materials which are very, very child friendly, and so kids just do what they're told because it's not painful. They they play and then it's like then you learn this and you go on to the next higher thing. You go to the next higher thing, and and it's all very easy, and and it works. Um, so when I was a student, then when I started, uh, there was no Suzuki stuff, and. I started learning from materials written by Leopold Auer, who was a great, great pedagogue in the early 20th century, late 19th century. And he was the teacher of Heifetz and Milstein and, and these guys. Um, and he was a great teacher, and he wrote books which were meant for grown ups. And they taught playing the violin from the ground up. And so I started with Leopold Auer Book One. And Leopold Auer Book One. Is all long bows open strings um, which is the last thing that that is easy for kids to do and it was excruciatingly boring and it was also very excruciating sounding because when you're starting out the hardest thing to do is to do a long straight bow Um, so I had my assigned little bit of practice time, and of course, most of the practice time, I was not playing Leopold Hour Book One. I was fooling around, and it was I was fooling around with with everything I could think of, and I knew I, I sort of had to make noise of some kind, because my parents would know if I wasn't practicing. And so, I fooled around with everything having to do with the violin, including ricochet, and, and I experimented with it, and I had no, nothing I was supposed to be doing for my lesson with it. And so I just fooled around. And lots of sort of violin techniques, harmonics, ricochet, um, different kinds of bow strokes, which, um, which you don't really learn, you discover. And so, so I very quickly found, okay, ricochet is fun. And uh, my students don't have that experience. They never fooled around when they were kids. They were good boys and girls, and they did what the teacher told them. So they never did this stuff. And then they have to play a piece that has this technique, and it's like a mystery to them. How do you do that?
2: Wow. I mean, the child learns by, you said, fooling around, by playing. I mean, that's what you were doing. You were playing.
0: Exactly. And so it's it's a good metaphor for for learning as a child then all of your learning is playing and and it's interesting that that's the same word that we use for playing an instrument um, which is true in English it's also true like in German or in French um, it's it's not true in Hebrew where you have a different word when you play an instrument you mean you, again the instrument which which actually means you sing on the instrument, which is very beautiful.
2: I like that, yeah. yeah, but it, sounds, it sounds a lot more grown- up. The playing sounds like something you know you do as a child, and you I guess you try to hold on to that childish kind of amazement of the sound throughout your career.: Yeah,
0: yeah exactly.
2: Yeah, yeah. How did you decide to play the violin? I guess you started at a very young age?:
0: I started when I was five and a half. And I started music a little earlier than that not much earlier, but my mother was a piano teacher and my father was an excellent amateur violinist uh, he, he was a physics professor and my older sister started playing piano and So I said okay. I'm gonna play piano but we had a kind of typical sibling relationship which had a lot of competitive aspect and she started before me and she had learned things that I couldn't do yet and I don't remember this but according to family lore which means my mother then she uh, then then I made life impossible and so so it was decreed I had to find another instrument and so I said, great, I want to play the cello. And, um, and this being before the time of Suzuki training in America, then there was no such thing as a tiny, tiny cello. There was something which I didn't know about, and our, my family didn't know about, which was you stick an end pin into a viola. But we didn't know about that. And so they said, okay, you play the violin. And I was okay with that. I liked, you know, I really liked the sound of the cello in some sense more. But I listened to some records, and I decided, you know, the violin was fine. My father played the violin, and that was great. And I liked to listen to him practice. So that's how I played the violin.
2: Interesting. A a, a talented family there. So do you play the cello? Do you you fool around with that at all? No. No. You were trained at Juilliard, Dorothy DeLay, was an important uh, influence on you early on. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and she she was not a though she performed early in her career, she did not continue to perform. Became mostly a teacher. Uh, yeah, she of, became
0: of, entirely a teacher. Right. Um, and I went to her when I was uh, nine, uh, and I lived in Syracuse, and she lived, and she was teaching in New York, and she. Um, Well, uh, in her later career then lots of people went to her when they were nine and they were playing a concert the next week with the Berlin Philharmonic um, playing the Tchaikovsky Concerto and I was not that kind of person I was not a a wunderkind at all and when I went to her at the age of nine it was because I was having a lot of fun with the violin I had a teacher in Syracuse who, who I really enjoyed but he was he taught me a lot of things which were not great habits physically. Um, he taught me to love music, which was wonderful. And, um, and I made a lot of good progress until I was like eight. And then I was kind of stuck because of these habits which were not so great. And, uh, and I was playing repertoire that was vastly too difficult for me. And so, I went to delay because my uncle, um, who just retired now, but he, he was a violin teacher at Manhattan School, uh, Burton Kaplan, and he had studied with delay. And he said, well, Mark should come to New York and play for Dorothy delay and Ivan Galamian, who were at that time working together. So, I came and played for them. And... Um, and I was, um, well, I went and played for, for Galamian, who was a kind of scary figure for a, a young child. Uh, I went into his studio, which was his apartment, and he pointed to a spot that had been worn through in the carpet, and and he said, Stand there and play me a C-major for Gale. And I never had met anyone like that, he was Armenian and, and very actually a very warm person, but I didn't know it at the time. And so I played him a C major scale. And he said, oh, very nice, let's now play faster. So I played it faster. He said, now play still faster. And I played it faster and he said, now play it as fast as you can. And I said, well that was as fast as I can. And, um, and then now play scale in thirds. And now play scale in octaves. So I did all these things. And then he said, um, and you have some piece to play for me. And I played him a little of a piece. Maybe maybe one phrase. And he said, okay, you very much. And so that was my playing for Galamian. And then, uh, then I went and met with delay at her studio at Juilliard and she opened the door of her studio in at Juilliard and she was very kind of maternal and she said, Oh, hi, sugar plum, come right in <laughs> and um and I think of this moment because I have kids of my own and I know that there are times when as a parent you want to just Disappear through the floor, and I and I'm sure this was a time like that for my father, who took me to these auditions, because I turned to him, and I said, "Daddy, I want to have lessons with her." <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so I, I auditioned for Delay, and it was decided that I would work for. Uh, like a year or two with delay and then work with both of them. Um, but that's not what happened because I worked for a year or two with her and then I just stayed with her.
2: Why Why wouldn't you? Darling Bubchkin, it's like it's uh, delightful.
0: Yeah, well, she, she was an amazing teacher.
1: And when I was a very young teacher, I heard a speech by Felix Salmond, who was teacher of Leonard Rose, who was teacher of Yo-Yo Ma. And which he said that a fine artist must have three things. He must have a beautiful sound, he must have a beautiful intonation, and he must have beautiful phrasing. And I thought about that all these years, and I thought about the fact that I think all of these things are learned. I know many people don't agree with me, but I think they are, can be learned and an awful lot of the teaching uh, format that I use is based on those three things.
2: Delay wasn't a performer. You are both a performer and a teacher. Does one inform the other? Does your teaching inform your performing? Does one
0: improve? Yes, yes, both. Nowadays, I would say, there are very few people who are entirely performer and not teacher. Um, there's a few who I won't name who are probably not great teachers, even though they may be great performers. But there are a lot of, I mean, even at the highest level, so somebody like uh, Itzhak Perlman uh, is, is a wonderful teacher and is very, very devoted to his teaching. Um, so it's, it's, it's not such a clear separation. I think most people realize that, that both things inform the other. And Delay, in, in my early years with her, would often demonstrate things on, on the violin, and she could play very beautifully. She was not like a virtuoso violinist, but um, I remember one lesson when she started playing, to demonstrate she started playing the Fifth Mozart Concerto, and, and she didn't play, she didn't practice. But she started playing, and, and it sounded very nice, and I think she knew it sounded very nice. And she just kept playing for a while, and, uh, and then she kind of realized where she was and stopped, and we went back to the lesson. But it was really very nice to hear her. That must
2: be amazing, that moment when just everything is kind of working, and it's yeah. like you're, you're into the music. And do you, and, and in those moments, do, do they happen in performance, or is it mostly when you're rehearsing? And practicing?
0: Uh, no, they mostly in performance. Yeah. If you're a performer by temperament, uh, which which I am, although not as much as some of the great performers, like let's say Rubinstein, who I think was really um, he just nourished himself from his audience, and I don't think. I was at any point, I love performing, and I I think, you know, at my best, I do it pretty well, but I don't don't think I was ever someone who, I I think the players like Rubenstein, I think that they really needed the love of their audience as food. And that 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 came across.
2: And you have other things going for you besides your music, so that you don't need that solely to build yourself up and be the person. Well, you I are. need,
0: yeah. I mean, I need I need the music, but I don't need the audience love in the same way. Okay. I enjoy the audience love, but it's it's not the same thing. Um, and and I should say that when I went into music, that was one of the choices. And I went to Juilliard, and I took physics courses at Columbia. And I was at a point where I could have done either. And I gave myself a year to decide. And I knew for sure at the end of that year that I had an ulcer. And that's the only thing I knew, but- um, <laughs> Brought on by the physics. I don't know. I think brought on by the the stress of of both of them and the stress of the decision.
2: Was your father pressuring you to get into physics? Because he was no,
0: a, no. No, my parents were very hands off uh, and very. We are not going to pressure you, and that's partly because my father came from. Uh, and well, his mother was somebody who pressured her kids relentlessly, and I think that that both he and my mother decided we're not going to do that to our children. Great, great. And so paradoxically, that was difficult for me because I felt that I should have some kind of input from them, even if I wanted to rebel against it.
2: Especially when you're a teenager, rebellion is good.
0: Yeah, maybe I needed it just so that I could rebel against it.
2: There, there you go. You, I, I I wanted to quickly say, and I don't know if you have any comment about it, you seem to come from a musical dynasty. Music seems to uh, per- percolate throughout your family, and your your two sons are now professional musicians. Edwin is a violinist for the Tesla Quintet. David is a uh, pianist, uh, faculty at yeah, Edwin, Edwin,
0: Edwin. yeah, Edwin's a violist, violist with the Tesla Quartet. Um, and... Um, and i should mention there's a third son but he's only 12 now
2: and what is he studying
0: he studies piano but i i don't think he's going to be a a, a pianist he's 12 so anything could happen but i don't i don't see him as having that kind of fanaticism for 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 playing for for physically playing and that's okay that's yeah that's great um i think i've contributed enough musicians to the world I should say that last night I heard the Tesla Quartet play a live concert Wow! and and that was the first live concert I've been to um, since February Um, and it was the first live concert that they had played since February and I don't mean online, I mean in person, so they played a concert at the Morris Museum in Morristown, New Jersey. And it was uh, outdoors on a kind of, I, I don't know if it was the roof of a parking lot or of a building or something. And uh, and they've been marked off into eight foot squares and you could have one or two people in a square. Um, and uh, and it was great. It was a lot of fun. And they of course they were playing with a kind of well it was well done a subtle uh, uh you know uh, amplification because it was completely outside there was no shell or anything and that was really nice and you could see in the audience in their faces that that they really were missing this kind of experience even though this was a sort of bizarre way to to go to a concert This
2: is hunker down podcast I'm Alan Winson, and I'm speaking with American violinist Mark Kaplan. We began this episode with Mark playing the end of the Bach Sonata Number no. 3 in C Major, Third Movement. So let's hear a bit more from the beginning of that recording. Let's talk about your flourishing solo career, which I read began really in 1975. You had your European debut playing a Bartok concerto in Cologne, conducted by Lawrence Foster, but you had very short notice you were replacing or substituting for Pincus Zuckerman. I mean, That's that right. must have been scary or not. Well, Well, yes and no. I mean, it
0: was... So this was not this was not like two days before this was about three weeks before and and it was because um, he was expecting the birth of his first child and he wanted to be home for that and um, which is something I know about now Mm -hmm. and and so I got a call from a wonderful woman in London uh, who was Pinka Zuckerman's manager, and also Perlman's manager. And and I had been in touch with a couple of managers in Europe to try to get my career going there. Um, and and I got a call from her and said that uh, Pinky has canceled Barta Concerto in Cologne, and, and so here's the date. Um, are you available for it? And I had never studied the Bartok Concerto. Um, I had studied the first Bartok Concerto, which is a much different piece. And I loved that. And and I was at an age when you, you do take on crazy things like that. How old were you? So I was 20 or 21. You were a baby. I was a baby. And I said, sure. And because I really had to decide right then. Actually, she didn't call me. She sent me a telegram. When is the last time you got a telegram? Not since you know I've been me? 20. And so I got a telegram and I, and so I said sure. And then I went down, I rushed down to patelson's Patelson's doesn't exist, but Patelson's was, for years and years, the prime music store in New York City. And it was, an amazing place, an amazing establishment. It was family-run business. It was right across the street from the backstage entrance of Carnegie Hall. And I actually had occasion to use Padelson's when I was playing at Carnegie Hall. Um, but it was an amazing place. It's no longer with us, unfortunately. I rushed down to Pedelson's, I got the Bartok Concerto. I went home. I practically had a heart attack. Uh, because it's, it is you know, it's a big piece and quite demanding um, and and before I even knew, saw the music I I had determined, oh of course I play it from memory because um, that's what you do, even though I think at that time certainly Zuckerman didn't play it from memory n- neither did Perlman, but but I said, okay, this is it and, and I worked very hard and and I went over to Cologne uh, and and played it and um, and I'll tell you a story that has to do with one of the pieces that I was suggesting a recording for which is the second movement of that concerto um, I went over there to Europe with my girlfriend who later became my first wife and she played the violin too, although that was not her professional thing. And I went over like several days ahead to kind of get over jet lag, and we stayed at the home of her family because she came from a German family. And I was in this room practicing, and I was pla- practicing on Guarnera del Gesu, which I had borrowed for the occasion. And I s- took a break in my practicing, and well, I was. I was working on the second movement and I played the beginning of the second movement. And my girlfriend who was in the room says, you know, that's not right, it doesn't sound good. It doesn't have enough feeling. And I, was, and I played it and I played it 20 times. And, I, and, and she kept saying, no, it's, it's no good. And, and I would have argued with her, except I knew she was right. What was wrong and, with it? What was, what was going wrong? Could you describe that? Um, Well, I hadn't yet understood it yet, and so I I didn't, I hadn't understood the message that it was giving personally to me, and so I couldn't put anything personal into it that would communicate. I could play it very beautifully, it was fine, but it was not, it was not real living music-making. Um, and so I put down the violin in its case because I was going to like rest for a second. And as I put down the violin in the case, the case was on a shelf, and there was another shelf on top of that with a flower pot. Oh. <laughs> yes. I my head banged against the flower pot, and it fell down. Oh. And of course, I saw my life passing before my eyes all, whatever, 20 years of the life that there, had, that there was. And, um, and I managed to, like, deflect the flower... I mean, the flower part would have just smashed the violin. But I managed to deflect it enough so that it just kind of nicked the edge of the violin. But, you know, my blood pressure was through the roof... And I picked up the violin, and 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 I was like caressing it, and like, are you okay? And and then and and I knew that I mean, on the surface, on the face of it, the damage was pretty insignificant. It was a little nick, which you don't want to do to a Guarneri del Jesu, but you know, God knows it had had plenty of nicks in its life. And so I I picked it up. And then, in order to see, could it re- was it really okay? I started playing this same piece, the second movement on the bar top, and my girlfriend said, "That's it. Wow. Now you've got it." Wow. And um, and so, in some sense, I needed that emotional experience in order to be able to play it. Wow. And if that hadn't happened, I would have found something else. But um, but that's uh, that was my story, and that's why I mentioned that piece when I gave you a list of recordings.
2: Let's now listen to an excerpt from Bartok's Violin Concerto No. 2, Second Movement, with the Budapest Festival Orchestra, conducted by Lawrence Foster and featuring soloist Mark Kaplan. Okay, um, that's that's a terrific story uh, about about the violin. You now are playing with a violin that's also quite. It has a name on it. I mean, it's a famous violin.
0: Well, well, yeah. Okay. I should say that all violins uh, that are by Stradivari, this is a Strad, and all violins that are made by Stradivari, basically all of them have a name. The name may not be a famous name. um, My violin has has a fabulous story which is not one way i can tell the whole thing because it's a long story but basically it was it was lost in the second world war when i say lost we don't know what happened to it it was sold by the family that it had for several generations and it was then bought by a violinist from the los angeles philharmonic when they were on tour in italy and he bought it not knowing that it was a Strat. And he paid, I think, maybe $6,000 for it or something like that. Oh. Um, and when he, um, and, and, and that was a lot of money at the time, that was in 19, uh, maybe 72. And, and at that time, then, he, he didn't have that kind of money. And he had to borrow it from the orchestra manager he had to borrow it like in cash and and the other orchestra members were kind of teasing him that he had bought this violin from a rather shady guy and that he had probably been ripped off but he just liked the sound of it um, and then when the orchestra was on to uh, finished their tour in london and some and isaac stern was the soloist and isaac heard the story and he looked at the violin And he wasn't like an expert on, you know, uh, on the physical part of antique violins, but he knew this was a good instrument. And he said, you know, you're in London, you should take this to hills or to beers. And so the next morning before hopping on the plane, he went over to Charles Beer, who was then the world's leading expert, um, and probably still is now. And, uh, And Charles said, you know, you have a Strad there. And, and this guy, who was a very kind of, uh, you know, nice fellow, ordinary violinist in the orchestra, was not the kind of guy that that would happen to. And, um, and so that, according to Charles, he fainted, which could have been. Anyway, um, where were we? With Strat. So um, the, the violin is known by the name of the family who owned it at the time that it was lost. And, and that was identified because it, it actually has pictures in a book that was published on the bicentennial of Stradivari's death. So in 1937, there was a book about Stradivari, and this was listed and has a picture of it in in that book. Um, and it was owned by the family of the of the Marchese Spinola, and so it's known as the Marques Espinoza, but I just call it the Marquis.
2: How did you How did you come upon
0: it? Well, that's the story that's too long. Okay, all right. So we won't tell it now, but sometime I'll tell
2: it. That would that, be wonderful. I know after speaking with Ralph Schulte, he has a, and I don't know the name of his violin, but he has a relationship with his violin, and whenever he's Apart from it, he's a little bit distraught, and he has a. He says, "No, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. It's no, no problem." But I know I get the feeling that it's like he wants his buddy back. Uh, what is that relationship that you violinists have with your violin?
0: Well, the violin is is something that you, uh, I mean, you can physically hold it. And, this is the Marquesa?
2: It, what do you say? Is, is this your violin? Your yeah. You're playing now. Okay.
0: And it's and it's um it's beautiful and it's very beautiful and you um, and, and it's not just you physically hold it you have to you have to help it to speak um, and you know when you're a kid and you learn then you're just trying to kind of make a nice sound but as you become an artist then it's more than that and you're trying to um, sing like with a voice with this box and so the violin has something very very personal um, and m- many people give names to their instruments um, they certainly have they certainly have a gender I mean my bi- violin is definitely a woman there's no question um, and I never gave her a name but many people do give names to their instruments What's her what's her what's her personality? Is she difficult? Is she moody? Is she? I mean, no, could... no, she's she's actually w- wonderful to live with, and not all violins are. Um, before I had this violin, I borrowed really good violins for more than a decade from a wonderful friend of mine, um, who's well, he's in his nineties now, and, and one of the violins I borrowed was a guaneri, not the one from Cologne, the different a different del jesu and and that one was very temperamental, changed very drastically with the weather um, you like every note you had to treat differently It's a great instrument, but not necessarily easy to play. sounds a bit psychotic, yeah, I would say a little bit <laughs> capricious capricious, okay,
2: all right. In the second part of this hunkered-down conversation with violinist Mark Kaplan, we talked about his chamber music work and listened to his performances of Fred Lairdahl's Times 3 and the samba movement from Paul Schoenfeld's Four Music Videos. And we finished up talking about the future of high-end classic music concerts. If you like what you're hearing from this podcast, Hunker Down, please contact us at Upper West Side Radio at gmail.com.